Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. My name is Curtis Lawson with Shepherd Construction Advisors, and along with my industry expert friends, I am here to guide you through these four key components of a successful project, which are demonstrated by this simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team, the right wall is communication, and the roof is proper execution. Have all four of these components in place and your project will succeed. Whether you're building or remodeling a custom home, or if you're an architect or designer looking for inspiration, or maybe you're just interested in building science and high-performance construction, you're in the right place. Please help us further our mission here by tapping that follow or subscribe button, push that notification bell, so that you know when our new episodes drop every week. And now, let's get to today's interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. I, as always, am your host, Curtis Lawson. And today we are going to talk about uh, setting expectations between clients and architects, design personnel uh, to start a project to set things up for success. And for that topic today, I am joined by Eric Hughes and Heather Roll, and they are with HR Design Department. They are local architects here in Houston. So Eric and Heather, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So um, we've, we met each other a while back and uh, we haven't done any projects together yet, although I've, I've looked at some stuff with you and hopefully we can get something going really soon. But uh, I've seen your work out there and you know, have, have uh, heard great things about you. And you guys have been kind enough to send some stuff my way to, to look at some projects. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your background, kind of how you guys met, and then what types of projects and things like that that you guys do? We, yeah. uh, we, we laugh a lot because we feel like we both uh, had a really similar trajectory in our careers. We both came from tiny towns. Eric's from Nebraska. Hers, from, hers is just a lot more beautiful than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from North Carolina, the mountains there. Oh, okay. Um, both of us attended big state schools. So uh, I went to North Carolina State University. Eric went to University of Nebraska. And then both of us decided to come to Rice for graduate school. And that's how we ended up meeting each other. He was actually a couple years ahead of me. And while we were in school there, both of us worked for big, big firms downtown Houston. And I think both of us just looked back at our small town lives and wondered what we were doing <laughs> in big towers. Um, and so both of us actually switched and started working for uh, like small boutique um, residential firms. And I think it just really resonated with us. Yeah, absolutely. Right after uh, I graduated, um, I started a firm with Jesse Hager called Content Architecture. And about a year into that, Eric joined us. And um, so we had, before we started HR Design Department, we'd worked together for about seven years. So we really kind of understand each other's process and uh, our, the way we think about design and uh, how we want to deliver things to our clients. Yeah. I mean, if you know that you want to have a, a partner as an architect, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is finding someone that you can fully trust and I think that there's an element of trust that we both have for each other and we have very different skill sets and we each trust each other to take those skill sets and run with them that's funny we'll have to talk some more after uh, after the podcast but um, my wife went to NC State oh, and she's yeah. also from the, a small town in the mountains in North Carolina what? Brevard oh I'm from Cullowee 
So county, one county over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, small world. Yeah. Uh, so we we also moved from small town North Carolina to to Houston and went through that same culture yeah. shock. Right. It's a huge transition. <laughs> so what kind of projects do you guys uh, mostly do? I know there's always a variety for people, but kind of what do you focus on? What do you like to do? Yeah, we've always said that it's it we're open to all types of projects, and it's just about finding the right fit with somebody that wants to do something interesting and collaborative. But we found ourselves primarily doing single family residential, and we love the detail of that. We love how personal it is and the relationships that form out of that. But we've done everything from that to boutique commercial to 300 unit multifamily project. I mean, there's there's a lot of, uh, with the help of a uh, architect of record, but there's a broad range of what we do and what we're willing to take on. I think that the personal nature of residential real estate and construction is what makes it um, rewarding and stressful at the same time, right? Because it's rewarding because you get, you're doing something for someone's family and you get to see that result and see them enjoy it. But at the same time, it's very stressful because, because it is so personal. People get emotional about things. People take things a lot more seriously than they do if it's a commercial project where it's more just about, hey, get it done, budget, time frame. It's more about the dollars and the numbers with a commercial project. For sure. Yeah. I mean, well, in residential, it's a huge personal investment too, which I think adds a lot of stress to it. But it's also something that's going to potentially affect you and your family's daily life. And so that's a stressful process. You know, you're going to spend so much money on something that you're going to live with every day. (laughs) So today I wanted to talk about, you know, what makes a successful project or, or how to set a project up for success. And so I kind of wanted to start by just say, to asking, you know, what does a successful project look like to you guys? Because um, that, that means different things to different builders and architects. Like at the end of the day, how do you look back and say that was a, a success? Yeah. Well, part of this looks different depending on if it's single family residential versus commercial, but I think in general, just owner enthusiasm and especially when it's single family or residential somebody coming to you that's excited about your work and excited about the the process that there's a mutual respect both us for them and them for us uh in terms of knowing what they're getting into and also just uh, appreciating what we're bringing to the table i think i think for us we um we kind of go into the project thinking okay we really want this to be as enjoyable as possible for this client because that is going to make the whole process better for everyone along the way, every person that's part of the team. And so if we can facilitate that, it's going to create a successful project. And like Eric said, that takes trust um, from the client in the process and trust in us and trust of everyone who's on that team. But I think for both of us, it's a successful project when at the end of the day, we can look back at it and we have nothing but good memories like there are always bumps along the way but if you can look back at it and think wow i'm so glad that this client has you know been able that they're able to live in this home and find joy in it every time that they're there and not look back and have bad memories of the process then we facilitated a good project (laughs) well and we although you know we can appreciate projects that just 
for whatever reason, don't make it to the built phase. But for us, it's really important that our projects get built and that they become a reality. <laughs> and there's a thousand and one ways for an architecture project to die. <laughs> but when we do get to that phase, we try really hard to, and we'll get, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but to try to set realistic expectations to make sure that can happen in regards to budget and timelines and try to think through all the variables that normally become the, the hindrances to that happening. Why do some projects end up not getting built? Cause that's, I mean, that's frustrating for me too, because it happens a lot, you know, and, and I'm sure it happens probably more for you than it does for me even, but you know, where you go through and spend all this time planning, designing something, and then it just kind of peters out and never happens. Or, I mean, I even look at projects, price them. I feel like we're about to start. And then all of a sudden, no, eh, you know what? We changed our minds. Yeah. So like, why does that happen? I wish there was a clear answer, but it's, <laughs> it's, I feel like it's different for every single project we've, yeah, there's so many reasons. We've had um, clients where they go through the process and suddenly there's another baby on the way and that's not the house that we had designed for them and it was completely unexpected. Like a big life change or a job change. change. Yeah. Or we've had projects where we're working on the project and someone came along and offered them like three times more than what they paid for the lot and it was just worth it for them to switch course. So I think, like Eric said, there's a thousand and one yeah. different ways that it can happen. But a, I think a common thing that happens for a lot of architects is that the project gets designed and it goes over budget. And then the client gets really cold feet about it or isn't sure if it's going to be the right project for them. And we try really, really hard to make sure that that is not one of the 1001 reasons that it happens. Yeah, I think. We're very conscientious of that, maybe overly so, even at the start, I feel like I am, but uh, making sure that it's it's very clear what frame of reference uh, they have for how much a project costs and that they're working within a realistic framework and that we try to keep them within that the whole time. And budget and timeline are two things that we can control on our end and a lot of the other things we don't have any control over, but the things that we have control over, we want to make sure that we're being good stewards of them. Yeah. I mean, when, when somebody, you know, sells the lot or they have a, a new baby or something like that, those are usually, you know, not bad circumstances for the project to, to not get built under, but when it ends with, we can't afford this or it's over budget or whatever, then usually that's disappointing and frustrating. And that's not the yeah. kind of the happy client outcome that you want. Right. Right. Well, and like Eric said, it's not successful if it doesn't get built. And so we have to make sure that we're paying attention to that uh, yeah. from the front end. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. choosing you to embark most of the time with residential on a dream that you're co-creating. And so that, that dream, if it comes crashing down and it's it's on our shoulders, then that's the worst feeling to have. Something that we always talk about here, the very, one of the very first steps has got to be you know, just setting a realistic budget for the project. And, you know, the problem is that people don't know really what things cost when they first come to you. So a good, a good bit of that is education. And I'll step out and say now that, and don't take this the wrong way, but a lot of times architects don't always know what things cost. And so you have to have good builders, contractors, or good relationships with those people to bounce ideas off of. Right. And, you know, you can call and say, Curtis, these people are thinking about this. What do you think that costs? Right. Yeah. 
Well, I think for us, one of the reasons that we really struggle with it, you know, even even as we're we're trying so hard to pay attention to it, is that when we bid a project, it's not unusual for us to have big swings, mm-hmm. uh, depending on who's bidding it and the type of builder that might be bidding it. So, you know, do they have a lot of people working uh, in the background that's helping to support the project? Or is it like a one-man show that right. might show up to the project for a few hours each day or something? And the level of subs that they have working on it. And so there's a huge swing. Mm. So we have to be managing, okay, from the very front end, be thinking, what kind of builder are they going to want for this project? Like, what's their threshold for a builder? And then work within our experience, which is all we have, of how much normally that type of builder is going to come in for the project expectations that this client has. I think a lot of times that you guys are, because you design something and then maybe it takes a year or two years for that work to actually happen. Um, or sometimes you design something and it might be a while to, until it actually gets started, right? And so I think sometimes you're working with older data because especially like right now, yeah. over the last couple of years, like prices have gone up and down like crazy. And, and that's and when you're kind of working a few months or a year or so, even kind of behind that pricing curve, you might throw out some data that you think is good, but then it's, it, you know, that's last year's data, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, and even I think truthfully, a number of the, Builders that we've worked with are sometimes even surprised by when the hard bid comes in mm-hmm. relative to what they were initially projecting it was going to be in the the climate for residential that the metrics that are used to price are just so different than commercial and it's so based on what your sub consultants are and who's bidding the project and what their bandwidth is and what their availability and those numbers can fluctuate in a way that doesn't always make sense in terms of just simple cost per square foot metrics that you would have in commercial. Yeah. I like to start with cost per square foot, not for the whole project, but like for individual items. So if I'm, if I'm doing like a first pass, like if you just send me a set of plans and you're like, Hey Curtis, what do you think a range is to build this? You know, I'm, I'm going to start with historical data, you know, Hey, there's this much tile. It's about this, this, this many dollars per square foot. It's this much framed area. That's about this much per square foot for framing labor and kind of start there and create, create maybe a plus or minus 10% range and just make sure that, you know, your clients are okay with that range before we even go to the next step uh, and, and, and then tighten it up from there. I mean, as long as I'm active in these neighborhoods with the appropriate sub for what, for, for the work that's going to be done, I'm not using a, a cheap sub in an expensive neighborhood, right? Um, that historical data should be close enough to get us into that ballpark, right? And then from there, you know, um, you know, we like to engage with the architect and the homeowner just to make sure that budget's staying on track all the way through. Well, and that's why oftentimes we recommend to owners that they engage with a builder early, especially if the budget is tight and there's a concern for that. We often advocate for getting them involved to help keep things in check and to make sure that we're creating a collaborative team that can make the budget work. One of the things that you mentioned a minute ago was um, a successful project, you know, means there's mutual trust and respect. And I think that the struggle with that is some, some clients, I hope this isn't too much of a, a generalization, but I think some people have this mentality that when 
they write you a check when they're paying you for something that you're that you're kind of working for them and not with them. And so one thing that I look for in, in clients, because it's honestly the, the interview process of interviewing an architect, interviewing a builder is kind of a two way thing because that's that's our chance to maybe weed out people that we don't want to work with. And so it's trying to get a sense of, is this person going to treat me with respect or are they going to treat me like I'm just another line item on the budget to where they, you know, I don't know. It's this mentality of when you write somebody a check, you, you own them or you're buying, you're buying them instead of you're, you're investing in their time and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're working with them. And so I think that that having that, that mentality of not seeing somebody as just a number is an, an important way to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for sure, it's got to be a collaborative process for sure. Um, okay, so when when somebody comes to you and they want to get the ball rolling on on designing a new house, remodeling a house, and they're trying to at that point choose uh, an architecture firm, a design firm to work with, what should they be looking for? Like, what kind of questions should should they be asking potential architects? I think. Uh, I think that. Uh, a good way to go about it is to first think of all the things they should be asking themselves of what they want to get out of the project. They should be thinking about how quickly they need the house. They need to think about, uh, are they are they building this house because it's their forever home or are they building it because they know they're going to sell it in the next five years? You know, that kind of uh, would define how custom the house is going to be. Is it custom to their lifestyle or is it custom to a broader audience of people potentially? Um, what's the budget for the house? We've talked a lot about that already. Um, uh, what kind of style do they want the house to be? And um, how much of a partner do they want their architect to be? I think those are all good things for them to be thinking about. And then once they kind of build those parameters, I think that those define the questions that you ask your architect, because you're going to go to the table and say, this is what I want out of this process. And then how are you going to work within it? So I think sometimes it's almost like turning the question back on yourself. Would you prefer that people come to you with, you know, kind of a set idea of what they want? I mean, we have people come to us sometimes with like floor plans sketched out on a piece of paper and say, I want this, you know, do your thing. I mean, would you prefer this, that someone comes to you with, with those ideas already kind of sketched out or, or outlined, or, or, or should they come to you with an open mind and just kind of trust your, create, your creative process? I think it just depends on the person. I feel like some people, they almost can't not do that. They, <laughs> based on how they're wired, they, they might just feel like they have to put something out there. Question is, is it malleable? And uh, is there motivation for doing it just to try and get what's in their head out and for us to have something to respond to um which hopefully you know that's the case and they're not saying here's how it has to be um because that would not make a good project for any of us and so we have no issue with them coming with a sketch uh, and thinking a little bit about uh how they want the space to lay out as long as they think of that as something that's the start of a process and not the here please take this and draft it up yeah, I mean, our our job is to create solutions to the parameters that we're given. And the parameters have to be provided by the homeowner because it's a custom house for them and their needs. Um, and so we 
it's common for us to get all levels uh, in those first meetings. Uh, we sometimes people come with a binder that <laughs> has a whole series of houses or clippings of things that they like. Other people don't really have an idea. They just know they need a house and they want it to fit their lifestyle. And so part of our design process is about really getting to know them and understanding what those needs are from whatever point they hand it off to us uh, to start the process. And so uh, one of the first things that we do uh, is we create a programming questionnaire for our clients. And this is probably one of the only parts of the design process where it's just written words. We, we ask them to describe in words uh, through a series of questions that we provide them what they need out of this house. And it's questions that are things that uh, talk about how the house is going to function, but also how the spaces relate to each other and how it's going to interact with their normal daily life and uh, their living patterns. Um, but we won't start a project until we've gathered all of that information because it's impossible to create a solution without setting parameters. Yeah, because if we don't do that, then it's just a, a, a design process that uh, we've conjured and kind of a byproduct of our own egos in a way, as opposed to it being something that's collaborative and an extension of the homeowner's desires. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's always this, this dynamic of the architect not listening to the homeowner and then the homeowner not listening to the architect. You know, it, it's like, in, in fact, one of the things that uh, I, I sent you guys some some questions ahead of time to kind of think about. And one of the things you mentioned was that you speak to students at Rice University about this process. And so talk some about kind of that dynamic between homeowners and architects in that way. Well, I think honestly, it's a little bit whenever we started our, our firm, it's something that we thought about, about what we really wanted out of this process. And um, we kind of broke down how we've seen um, architects and clients interact with each other over the years from working with other firms or watching uh, maybe how a firm is acting from afar. And, um, and there's like three types. There's, there's one type where the homeowner shows up at the architect's office and they say, I need this house, but I need it permitted. And I know that I just need it drawn up and I need the builder to be able to build it. And it's all here. I know exactly what I want. And they hand us the drawings. That is a process that works. And there are architects that will do that for clients. And it's basically a draftsman service. But when a client does that, they're not taking advantage of the expertise and the design sensibilities of the architect, of what the architect could bring to the table to make the project better. Um, and then there's the second version of that, which is flip it on its head. And the client comes in and they say that they need a house. And the architect says, I got it. I know exactly what you need. <laughs> and they design something that it could be amazing, architecturally beautiful, but does not function at all for the client's needs because the client wasn't part of that process. And it wasn't, there wasn't a team um, kind of collaboration going on there. But the third one which of course is the one that we strive to, the client's going to come into the architect's office in whatever capacity they want to lay out everything that uh, they want in a house. And the architect's going to take that and use it as data that helps them develop a solution that's specific to that client's needs. And, and the result is something that I think neither the architect or the client 
could have ever imagined when they first sat down at the table together. And those are the best projects. For sure. They're the ones that we find the most satisfying when you don't feel like either of you knew exactly where the, you, you had a trajectory in mind. But when you walk in and it's built and everybody's there together, it feels like something that was a collaboration and a little bit of a surprise. As you were talking, I was imagining like a scenario or a correlation of like going to a restaurant, going into the kitchen and telling the chef exactly how to cook the food, right? Yeah. Like you walk in, I want this meal and I want these ingredients and this is how you're going to cook it, right? Yeah. And then the, the other uh, scenario is you walk in and the chef just makes you whatever the chef feels like making and exactly. here you go, this is what you're going to eat. Yeah, right? that's a great yeah, analogy good... for it. But really it's like the scenario of a, of a, of a personal chef, right? Where yeah. um, you're, you're telling the, the chef what you like and what your food allergies are <laughs> and kind of what you need. And then the chef's going to take that information and make that meal for you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I will say like one caveat is that we, do think it's important that there's uh, a recognition of the style that the owner is wanting and that we're able to speak the same language in that regard. So if someone comes to us and wants something that is of a certain era and a traditional home where they're trying to create some sort of period element, it's not a project we typically say that we're, we get excited about and it's not one that we're used to detailing or we just have a lot of familiarity for and so not only is it something that we don't work on a lot but it's not something that brings us joy and so anytime that you have a project where from the get-go people aren't excited about it on all sides it's just not going to be a successful project yeah and the same goes for for builders too i mean there there are certain builders who are really good at you know very very traditional you know craftsmen or victorian or you know what have you then there's some builders who are really good at doing very modern stuff. Um, and it's not that they're not capable of doing one or the other. It's maybe they don't enjoy it, or maybe they don't have the trade base even to accomplish doing that type of house because they require different uh, levels of, of subcontractors or different skill sets that they may not have. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, that, that early interview process for me, it, it's more important to get into, you know, you know, the style and making sure that you're on the same page as far as um, expectations of uh, of what kind of design you want and, and, and that and personality, right? And less so even about budget in the very early conversations. It's, yeah. Are we more of a personality fit? Are we more of a stylistic fit? Yeah. yeah well, it's like a first date. For sure. <laughs> and well, one of our first questions is always, have you been to our website? Have a chance to look at our work? Does that resonate with you? references made not just be based on design it might be that they had a friend that said hey these people are really fun to work with or for whatever reason right and so it's a call where they haven't had a chance to really look at our our design yet then something we want to make sure that they're clear on and that we're from the get-go there's an understanding of the type of work that we do and so we'll off when they come in we'll oftentimes even have them pull up projects that they're excited about or projects that they've seen on our website that they like and to make sure that there's an understanding there. I think I'm, I'm going to create a, a, a tender for architects and homeowners <laughs> where, where it's like <laughs> pictures of houses pop up, you know, swipe left, swipe right, you know, decide if you like the, that, that architect. It hey, actually, that would actually probably be a great idea. Yeah, you you might have something there. <laughs> <laughs> make connections. Yeah. Add that to the list, Danielle. 
we'll put that on your on, on your task list for for uh, <laughs> next project. All right. So when people again back to when, when people are interviewing architects, I use the term red flags. It may not be the right term, but what are some what are some other questions they should be asking or some red flags that they should be looking for on, you know, things to avoid? Avoid from the architect or avo- yeah, avoid yes. in general? <laughs> again, again, red flag might be the wrong term here. Well, I, I mean, I think it, you can kind of fairly quickly oftentimes tell if someone's really listening to you or not, just based on their, their body language and whether or not they hear you out and then respond to your question or whether or not they're just eager to get their next response out. But I think that's one of the very first things is the architect whoever they're interviewing, actually listening to them. Yeah, that's a really good red flag. I saw um, someone said uh, once, it was like a good interview question, you ask the person uh, if they could ask their colleagues or people that they work with, like other builders, let's say, how those people would describe them. Um, You can learn a lot from from who someone is. And so uh, I think that's probably a, a good way to go about finding out who your architect is, you know? Yeah. I think people should also be asking, you know, do do you have time in your schedule to realistically take care of me and my project? Are you, are you overloaded? Are you backlogged? Is it going to take you six months to do this design or two years or three weeks or whatever, you know? Exactly. And the question there's, you know, simply like how many projects do you have in your office currently? And, you know, that may or may not elicit a truthful answer, but you know. Well, and that can also depend on on, on how many people are in the office. If yeah. it's just two people in the office, then that, obviously that's a smaller workload. If they've got twenty draftsmen and project managers for you know, that could you know, yeah, they could handle a lot of projects for sure. Does their current workload you know kind of fit with your schedule, and does that timeline you know work work out for you? What um, again, talking about setting expectations for the client. Um, what should people be expecting for a timeline? And I know this varies widely by client, right? Because it depends on how fast they make decisions and things like that. But how much time should people expect for uh, for design work, both for, I guess, new houses and then also for like a remodel? Yeah, probably the answer to this, if any architect that's been through the process is being truthful, it has to be a variation it has there has to be some variability in it because right. we typically i mean it's anywhere from six to nine months really to get drawings to permit phase and then permitting is if it's ground up you know three months and so you're looking at we usually say all in roughly two years is a good framework to be thinking about for design and then construction we talk a lot about how each owner client has different ways of working. Some people are very decisive. We have some clients right now that they can see something and within that meeting itself, decide on a direction that they want to go. Some people need weeks to mull that over. And then even after they've made the decision a month later, they might reconsider it. And so part of it is a byproduct of knowing yourself and being realistic about how decisive you can be about a lifestyle decision and if you're the kind of person that is very decisive, then you can be at the shorter end of that spectrum. Yeah. And then some people are, are very decisive and they make a decision and they, they keep second guessing themselves for the next six months. And uh, what if we move that wall three feet or three and you know, three inches or whatever, you know, it does happen. We, we really try to avoid that as much as we can. And one of the ways that we do it is um, 
We actually build a lot of extra time in on our schematic design phase and probably, I mean, sometimes probably we probably spend more time than, <laughs> than we should for what the number of hours we should be spending on it. But it's been so helpful for us to do that for several reasons. So um, one is that, you know, whenever we start the schematic design process, all we have at that point is that written document I was telling you about, right? We've created the program document. Um, but a lot of clients are, are unable to put everything that they want on paper. That might not be how they're just, they can describe what they need and what they want. Um, and so what we like to do is provide for them two or three options usually in the schematic design phase that are um, solutions to those program the, from the program document. We're creating a solution uh, within those parameters. Um, so there's two or three different options that we're normally giving them. And then that first meeting when we present it, we learn so much information from the client. Like they... There are a lot of times clients are better at responding to something that's in front of them than they are about just, you know, pulling out of the air all of the things that they need in their house. And so when we sit down at that first meeting, they're looking at each option and saying, oh, I forgot to tell you, I hate it when there's a staircase right in front of the front door. So definitely not like that. And so we're writing things down and it's just building upon those parameters that we set from the get go. So it helps us a ton in the design process as it as it moves forward. But um, it's also invaluable to the client, I think, because I think it actually helps them from second guessing those decisions as we move forward. So two or three months down the road, they don't wake up in the middle of the night and go, why didn't we think of doing it like that? Because hopefully we did. We already looked yeah. at that and we decided that it wasn't the right appropriate fit for them. It goes back to those three strategies that Heather mentioned earlier and just this idea, if you come with just one idea to the owner and say, here it is, here's the solution to your entire programming document, then it, it they feel like it's a take it or leave it scenario. Mm -hmm. And when you have two or three, I mean, of course, we always hope that um, they're going to look at one of those and be like, here's 90, this is 90% there, but in reality, it's more like, I like aspects of this. I like aspects of this. And so usually what comes out of that is a learning session that then leads to an entirely like option D, you know, basically. Right, exactly. Because that first meeting is really, a, it's a huge part of the design conversation. That's all. We're just facilitating a conversation. And like Eric said, hopefully one of them is close, but regardless, we're, we're honing in on what they really want. Well, and you also have to be able to figure out if they say that they don't like something, like how strong, how strongly do they really feel about that? Because I've had people say, I don't like that staircase in front. But then when you talk about other solutions, they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm okay with that. You're right. So it, yeah. it's like, we also have to be kind of like psychologists too. And, <laughs> and, and kind of figure out, um, do they really mean they hate that? Or is it just kind of like a mild dislike or, yeah, right. I mean, I think a lot of times we ask our clients when they uh, respond to something to tell us why. And it's really the same. We are trying to do the same thing. So even if they say they don't like something, we can point and say, well, this is why we did it that way. Because if we put this here, then it means you're going to get east light in the morning and your bedroom is going to get bathed with morning light or your kitchen or something. 
or if we rearrange it this way, this is going to happen. And that is just a way that we can start to speak our language to them while they're speaking their language back to us. And yeah, we're both learning from each other. Well, and it can tie in the budget too, because they might, they might not like something, but when they learn that the alternative is $50,000 more, they're like, Oh, maybe I do like that way now. Yeah, <laughs> right? Exactly. Sometimes that's the why. Yeah. <laughs> we keep kind of going back to budget because that's, I mean, it's such a, a big part of all of this. I mean, we, we all wish that we could, you know, design and build in a vacuum where we just design and build something that's like amazing. But the reality is that we, you know, at least for most clients that that budget is, is really at the heart of it. So I, I think that fleshing out early on what's included in that budget too is a big part of it because there's a lot of things that people may or may not be thinking about with that budget. So know in that initial number are they are they including design fees right are they including the engineering and the surveying and the soil testing and da, 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 you know all those pre-construction costs they're going to incur which can be a lot like you know they, they could spend hundred thousand dollars before they ever start the project uh so are, are they including that in their number um and then are they including you know the landscaping and the the driveway or if it's a remodel are they including replacing the air conditioning and the roof and all this other stuff. So, um, you know, having that discussion about, you know, what's in that budget, I think is important as what is the budget. Yeah. I mean, another thing that we see in a lot of our projects, but we have to be careful about quantifying it is the covered exterior area. Everybody likes to think of things in terms of conditions, square feet. Mm. Uh, but as soon as you start having these large, generous covered outdoor spaces, um, suddenly you see the frame number and, and the owner's like, what's this number? You know, where did this come from? Uh, but I had a 3000 square foot house, not a 5,000 square foot house. Uh, and you realize that all of that covered space has a number to it as well. And sometimes it can be almost as much as the condition square footage yeah. number. And so we try to be upfront and realistic about that. If they're the kind of people that want to have an outdoor lifestyle like that, Building a building a, a sheetrock box like a, a bedroom or just a, a game room or something like that is pretty cheap space to build, right? Mm -hmm. But you go outdoors and you, now you've got a, a fireplace and you've got tug and groove wood on the ceiling and you've got expensive tile on the floors and you've got an outdoor kitchen and it's like all that stuff is way more expensive than indoor space. Yeah, and so that's not reflected in that that kind of that cost per air conditioned square foot number. I think that people get stuck in their heads kind of shifting away from budget a little bit and, and talking about process and, and, and setting expectations for process. You know, we, we touched on timeline a little bit. Um, how do you explain your process for design? Um, you know, again, you, you talked about your, your, your questionnaire survey, whatever you want to call that, that document that you use. Um, you know, how do you, how, how do you set the expectations for, what your process looks like, not only timeline, but also what they're going to be receiving from you. How often are you going to meet all that sort of stuff? <laughs> Let's tackle it. Well, I think one of the things is walking through a, a drawing set is, is helpful to, especially relative to cost. And if we know that it's easy to just kind of taking it back to budget a little bit, but sure. the projects, uh, it's not just about the materials that you're selecting, 
uh, a lot of it is about the level of expectation and the level of expectation uh, is communicated oftentimes through the set of drawings. And so if, if we issue a, a set of drawings that's 40 pages long versus 20 pages long, a builder is going to instantly look at that and say, hey, there's a high level of expectations here for how these details get resolved. While that is the kind of architect that we like to be where we're involved with all of the details and really working through specifying everything down to the, the level of finish, we have to be cautious about what level we do that to based on the owner's budget mm. and whether or not it's the kind of, I mean, we have projects in the office right now where it, it will be a 40 plus page set of drawings and then somewhere it needs to be almost half that based on they can afford. And so, yeah. Yeah. Cause those 40 pages represent a lot of hours, right. And, and, and a lot of hours equate to fees. Right. right. A lot of time spent with them. Um, I think one of the things that we always tell our clients is that, you know, ultimately we're creating a set of documents that's a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional space. And so no matter how detailed our drawings are and how great the drawing set is, there's still an interpretation that happens when I hand that to the builder and, and whoever is going to look at it on, in the field. Um, and so I think for us, part of our deliverable too is telling them that we're not going to hand the drawing to the builder and walk away from the project because there are questions that arise along the way, no matter how great our set is. Um, and sometimes there's problems. Sometimes there are um, other solutions that might be better uh, for the project as as it as it enters construction. And we like to have this open dialogue of communication with our builder and the sub so that if there's a better solution where we're there to work through it together as a team um, and, and create the best possible project for the client in the process. When people are, are interviewing architects, there's a big difference in the level of service that, that they can get. I mean, and, and some architects have like a minimum, they say, you know, I won't do less than this. Like I, I, I require doing construction administration um, or, Hey, I'll give you a set of plans and, and, and wash my hands. But that's part of the conversation when people are interviewing you too, is like, what level of involvement do you have? What level of service do you want to provide all your clients um, versus what am I as a client expecting to, to get? Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And that greatly, you know, equals cost, right? Because again, it, it's all about, number of hours and how much you're going to be involved and, and what your, and what your time is worth. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference in cost when people are interviewing architects, you know, I, I hear this as a builder all the time when they come to me, they're like, well, so-and-so was, you know, X dollars per square foot for plans. And so-and-so was, you know, this much more per square foot. Yeah. And these people are wanting a percentage of the project. It's like, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, why would I ever pay that much for plans? And I'm like, well, what are you getting for that cost? You know, are you just getting 10 pages and a pat on the back? Or yeah. are you getting personal service all the way through the project? Are you getting inspections? You know, what's what, what's in that cost? Yeah, it's yeah, a good for question. Sure. And, and how much interaction did the architect have with you when they created that set of drawings? Our process is very involved. And as Heather said, we start with multiple solutions as opposed to just throwing out the first one that seems plausible with a good custom architect there is a, a somewhat of a lengthy process because that's 
effectively, it's not a quick solution usually, especially when you're thinking about single family residential. I mean, there is a scenario where that's the case, uh, but that's not the world in which we operate. And we really allow clients to take their time and think through the various options that we've given. And we think through all of the selections with them. And then it's almost at every step of the process, even down to the selections, we're thinking about how does this either reinforce or negate the initial premises of the project that we started with. And so hopefully in the end, it all feels cyclical and it feels like it comes back to the initial priorities and some of the initial um, values that were set in the beginning and the things that made everyone excited about the project. Well, this whole podcast is about expectations too. And I think um, a set of drawings is explaining a set of expectations. And that set of drawings is the contract between the client and the builder, right? Like that is the document that's used that says, when when you sign on the dotted line and you say, I'm going to pay this much for this house, the number that is on that piece of paper was based off of a set of drawings. And that drawings is the set of expectations. And so if the expectations are really high, it might take a lot more drawings. And if the expectations are, I really need three bedrooms because I have three kids or whatever, it's like a the expectation is a is a, maybe a more simple expectation. Than, pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, more pragmatic yeah. expectation than mm-hmm. it might only take 10 pages. So yeah, we. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like you can kind of quickly start to understand that based on how in those initial interviews, the owner talks about projects and what they're excited about. If they are just overall like a certain sense of space and they just need certain solutions that, uh, like Heather said, are based on the number of rooms or the way a certain space feels. But, and we've had this, people that start pointing out certain curtain wall details or window wall details and like, oh, I really like it when the, the mullions look like this versus this. And you're like, okay. <laughs> This is a different level of expectation, right? And and we have to adjust our drawing set accordingly because, like Heather said, it's a matter of what that individual or individuals value and what they view as important relative to their project. I like what Heather said about the drawings maybe kind of being what the contract is based on, and and that's that that that's very true. And I, I think as a builder, if I get a really really great detailed set of plans, it actually makes my job easier on on giving an accurate bid and writing an accurate scope of work. Um, if I get a bare minimum set of plans, I have to spend a lot of time actually like spelling out what it is that I'm providing. Right. So if I get like a bare bones set of plans, now I'm going room by room and saying, okay, I am doing this, this detail in this room. I'm doing using this product here and I'm, ha- I'm spending way more time defining what that relationship is. Whereas if I get a complete set of plans, it's like, you're doing this millwork detail, you're installing these windows. Then I'm like, okay, great. Like on on my contract, I just put refer to plans for that detail. Right. Right. It saves me a ton of time. And I would much rather get that level of detail than have to kind of work, work all that out out of my own. Because now I'm spending my time and I'm also spending time with the client before we ever go to construction. Someone has to have that conversation, whether it's you or me, somebody has to have the conversation. Right. And I mean, for better or for worse, that set of drawings is also informing the level of sub that you put on the project. And so if you see that there's a lot of detail and uh, there are a lot of particular alignments, you're going to say, I need to put my A-team framer on this, right? Yep. 
uh, or same with millwork, right? Uh, as opposed to if the drawing set is looser and that's not specified, you and the budget is an issue, you can begin to you know consider a less expensive subcontractor, which goes back to the whole drawing set and expectations. Because if you put together a loose set of drawings, you might you could easily infer that possibly you could use a less expensive sub for certain things because the detail just isn't there yet. Well, there's just a ton of room for interpretation. It's like the more room there is for interpretation, the more swing there is in what the possibility of your budget is. <laughs> well, and, and the absolute worst combination is when you get a, 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 a not an undetailed set of drawings and a builder who doesn't define what he's going to do. Um, that That's a really bad situation. In fact, as, as a consultant, I see this a lot where people get into a project and, and, and the, the builder does some work and the client's like, well, why'd you do that? And the builder's like, oh, that's what I always do. Well, yeah, but that's not what I wanted. Well, the plans don't say that, right? And so the builder is just going to kind of do his, his standard detail, but that may not be what the architect intended. It may not be what the client wanted, but nobody spelled it out. So that's what you get. Yeah. The last place you want to learn about what your project is going to be like is when it's in the field and built. <laughs> it's a really bad place to learn about it. I think one of the things that's been so great for us, it's really helped architecture in a ton of ways is how accessible and easy it is for us to create three-dimensional representations now. And that that actually becomes part of our design process from the very beginning when those programs weren't so great, it was a little bit dangerous because clients would look at um, a rendering of something and then be upset that it didn't look like the rendering. But um, but now the rendering softwares are so amazing these days. And so we're able to get pretty close uh, through the design process to make sure that they're understanding what it's going to feel like whenever they step foot into the project. Kind of a game changer. <laughs> yeah, we had a, a client actually pretty recently who. Um... We showed them, in fact, we, we spoke about this on a recent podcast, actually, I think um, certain clients tend to ignore all the, uh, all the, the contract details early on, but then later, all of a sudden they start honing in on it, right? So um, and doctors are kind of like the worst about this, honestly, like doctors tend to be like very, very high level initially. And then once it's built, they're like, wait a minute, what's that? So we did this project where we showed the, the, the doctor um, some 3D renderings of a space and she signed off on it. She's like, yep, looks great. But you know, in our plans, it wasn't exactly like the renderings because the renderings are, again, it's really hard to get all these details just right on the renderings. And so when it got built, she's like, wait a minute, the cabinets are different than the renderings. I'm like, yeah, but the renderings were more of a conceptual thing, like just feeling out the space. She's like, no, no, I wanted that. You have to be careful. But I'm like, well, the plans and then the specifications that we wrote didn't say that. And you didn't read that. She's like, yeah, but I like the renderings. You have to be really careful in what you show people. For sure. And I think for us, a lot of times we're, we're rendering it early on. And then as the process hones into construction documents, we're actually going through the actual construction documents set with them and we're teaching them about the drawings like this is this is what this symbol means it means you can reference uh, the detail for that on this page and you should go look at it and trying to you know uh just kind of like you said earlier just educate the client about the process and make sure that they do understand what 
this document is that's about to go into their contract. <laughs> and often Neb's the type of client that appreciates that level of detail, also gets excited to to see it and understand the the background behind how it's achieved. All right. So last thing that I wanted to get into was talking about architecture fees, because I think again, people go into this not knowing really what to expect in the way of fees. Like, you know, um, like I said a minute ago, like people hear this, uh, you know, he charges X dollars a square foot and this guy has so much more, you know, without getting into exactly what you guys charge, because that's a really hard thing to even say, because I know you're, you're not like a per square foot type firm, right? What, what types of payment arrangements do you guys typically do in your firm? Um, and is it the same for new construction versus remodel? Do you guys do hourly? Do you do uh, a fixed fee or percentage? What do you do? We, uh, we're really flexible actually. And it, it really gets defined by a conversation with the client, um, in terms of, uh, how prepared they are, what they know that they want in the project from the get go. So we can work either hourly or we can work as a fixed fee. Whenever we work hourly, a lot of times we're doing it because the scope of the project might not be so defined yet. Yep. You know, we we don't know quite yet if they're going to, in the end, have a 3,000 square foot house or a 5,000 square foot house because even they're not sure. And they're not sure if they're like what what it's going to take to get them where they need to be. And so... Uh, sometimes in those scenarios, we'll just suggest that we'll work hourly um, and especially hourly through schematic design. Then once that scope gets defined, we can switch to a fixed fee if they're more comfortable with that. Or what normally happens is by that point, we've got trust from the client and we just continually continue going hourly at that point. Um, but then there's other clients that... Um, we we know the scope pretty well. It's pretty defined whenever they start the project. And it's easy for us to say, okay, like we know that we can do this within this range. And some clients just like the, you know, the ability to know exactly what's coming. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's not like this this open number. I think about lawyers a lot and how they charge hourly and it's like the scariest thing because you just don't know where the end is gonna be. Um, and so we're happy to create a, a fixed fee scenario too for the clients if they're more comfortable with that. And then in those um, situations, we're normally um, creating deliverables that we've outlined at each step along the design process. And then they would just get billed. You have to protect yourself, though, in that like if it's a fixed fee, you don't want somebody to go two steps down the road and then say, you know what, let's go back and change the program. Right. So. I would assume that even though it's a fixed fee, it's kind of like you're you're getting a sign off at each point so that if you do have to go back to square one, you're not having to eat all that time, right? For yep. sure. We have to put that in our contract that we sign with the owners. We specify the number of iter design iterations that we're going to do. And then we effectively say that once that schematic design phase, design development phase has been signed off on, that we're moving forward, that if we backtrack, then it'll just be an additional hourly fee to address that and depending on the client and the project that may or may not actually happen you just one of those things that you have to assess and see what uh what the what the real-time parameters are of it uh but the other thing i was going to mention is that we that that fixed fee if it, if it does exist um or even when we're thinking about the overall fee relative to the construction process and the cost of construction 
of course, is going to get higher the smaller the project is, and it gets lower as we're talking about a 4,000 square foot house, for instance, versus a 1,500 square foot house. Just like kind of this this mythical cost per square foot that people always ask builders what they charge, right? It's, you know, that, that cost per square foot actually goes down on big, like, like, like big projects because there's certain fixed costs that the builders have that are distributed more among that larger square footage. So for me to build a 2,500 square foot house, my cost per square foot might be way higher than if it was a 7,000 square foot house. Part of the reason that happens uh, for us in architecture is that no matter the size of the house, there's a certain number of drawings that we have to provide right. uh, to the builder for it to be able to be built. And so, um, you know, we're, we're always going to have to have a floor plan and building sections and elevations. And that doesn't matter what size the house is. Well, and this is why we oftentimes find that cost per square foot, even though it's hard to understand, because I think sometimes some owners hear that and they think, well, why would you charge me more if I pick a countertop that's twice as expensive as another countertop? And it's like, that's kind of like getting into the weeds on it. The, the reality is that we can have a 1500 square foot house with a high level of detail that, you know, upwards of $400 a square foot versus a 4,000 square foot house didn't have the same level of expectations as far as detail goes. And it's more like $300 a square foot. And so the cost per square foot is kind of a more accurate way of thinking about how many drawings need to be produced. And what is, again, the level of expectation relative to those drawings. A small house can still have a large drawing set. Definitely seen that happen <laughs> in yeah. big ways before. I like it. it, it it's funny. I've, I've kind of changed on this over the years and and maybe this is just like the the level of clientele or the level of house that we work in has moved up over the years but i find that a lot of our clients um who are professionals understand hourly rates um you know when you're dealing with um attorneys um engineers uh those types of clients they bill at hourly rates to their clients. And so they, they, they understand assigning an hourly rate to your time. And uh, I feel like those people, when you explain to them the number of hours that go into something, they tend to value it more than if it's just a fixed cost. So, you know, one of the changes that we've made over the last couple of years is, um, you know, we've, we've kind of transitioned from just this fixed cost builder I, I give you a number, take it or leave it to, we do some cost plus now, but but then even if we're not doing a, a cost plus, we're showing them a, a, break, a breakdown of the budget, showing a, a markup, and then we're also showing them the number of project management hours involved and assigning a uh, an hourly rate to that. And they're like, oh, you're going to put 700 of hour, uh, hours of time into my project, I understand now, yeah. versus just if they saw, you know, that, that that level of hour tracking not there and they just saw maybe a 40% markup. They're like, Oh, 40% markup. I would never pay that. But if you show them a a, a 20% markup, but 500 hours of time, now they understand why it costs this much more. Yeah. That's really smart. I mean, we haven't been doing that yet on our fixed fees where we also itemize our hours, but, um, there is a ton of hours that go into every dollar that's getting billed out. So it's a really smart way to do it. 
the struggle I think with hourly stuff is always uh, justifying those hours because people there's there's certain clients that are always going to question that they're like how did you spend ten hours doing that yeah and the, to them it's just as simple as just making some quick changes in the computer right exactly <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right I think that what people don't understand oftentimes is how many and this is I think the difference between how we operate versus let's say an architect that it's just about getting to the quickest solution is that we might produce four or five, even in between the various iterations where even if we're studying the way that a, like a primary bathroom suite is going to work out and how the cabinetry in there is going to work out, we might produce like three or four different options internally before we present them with one uh, because it's important for us to find the best solution. And so there's a lot of hours that go in behind even what they actually end up seeing. And it's something we have to constantly remember to, to be transparent about so that they do understand the number of hours that we are spending on project and they do see the value in which that we're bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean, when clients come to us, they're hiring us to do a custom house and that will always come with a level of risk that they have to accept because it's not, we're not developing something that is like a spec home where it's been repeated several times and all the kinks have gotten ironed out and everything's all buttoned up and perfect. They're asking us to create something that is completely customized to just them, which means that we have to experiment and we're going to have to um, try out different things and see if it's the right fit for them. And so that inherently is going to take more time. I think that's a great kind of summary of this is, um, you know, realizing or clients realizing and valuing the fact that, you know, that we're creating a prototype every time and not a, not a repeated product. I think the client expectations, you know, need to be that, you know, we as design, you as design professionals, I as the builder, you know, like we're going to spend a lot of hours putting all these pieces together and understanding what it is that they want. And so them kind of valuing that process and um and understanding that this isn't just a quick um a quick get in get out type thing and now again it it can be like you said there's if they come to the table with the expectations of i just need this basic level of service right that that's that's one thing but if you're if you're building a, a custom home or remodeling a custom home, that's generally not what you're looking for. Right. If you're a, a builder uh, wanting to do a spec house or something like that, or if you're just somebody that has a, a quick knee, like my parents have to move in with this because their health and I've got to get this done real quick. Right. That's, that's a totally different thing than I'm wanting to design my, my home for my family for the next 20 years. Exactly. Well, all right guys. Well, thank you so much for, yeah. for, for being here today. I really appreciate you. And, um, why don't you tell everybody who's watching and listening how to get a hold of you if, they, if they're interested in learning more about HR and, and working with you? <laughs> um, uh, you can visit our website. It's hrdesigndept, as in department.com. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook. And um, yeah, check out our website and just uh, give us a call. Check it out and see if they're, as we talked about, if they're, if their style, if their design aesthetic is, is something that works for you. And if it is, I definitely encourage you to call them because they are great people to work with. So again, thanks for being on today. Thanks yeah, for thank having you so us. much. Thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next time on the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Bye. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Cut. If you found us helpful and enjoyed listening, please support us by liking and subscribing here on your podcast platform and also join us on our YouTube channel. 
We want to continue to bring you high quality content and expert guests, and your support truly helps us to continue this journey. If you have any questions for me or my guests or any feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at yourprojectshepherd.com. Thanks again.